Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, how seamless will the transition be when those have to transfer from CERB to EI? What you should know about flying truck tires. Can we catch COVID-19 from frozen food? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Would you have spent all that money on braces for your teeth if you knew you'd be wearing a mask forever? Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, we've we've got uh, we've got uh, a, a couple of uh, Geek Squad people in the house today, uh, doing some work, keeping the show on the air, and and some other things, and uh, they're you know walking around and chatting, and and Kurt goes, I don't want to do my intro. Everybody's watching. There's there's two people in the house, and and uh, I think he did a pretty good job considering. Uh, Noses were pressed up against the glass. The biggest one, his sister, is just trying to knock him off his game. But he did another perfect job. All right. In regard to COVID-19, so many things going on. So much uh, as we come down the backside of this curve, going into now pretty much, well, now all of uh, southern Ontario is into stage three. One of the other issues as we come out of this pandemic is... Uh, the CERB, that is the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. Uh, those uh, That has been for people who have uh, obviously lost work due to what has happened during this pandemic. It is coming to an end in August, and uh, from that point, it will be trans. Uh, it will be transitioned. Those people will be transitioned into in, uh, employment insurance, uh, hopefully seamlessly. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with his business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now, Marvin. Thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. With you. So, your thoughts on well? First, let's tell everybody uh, what is going to happen here. Uh, the CERB is coming to an end. Uh, obviously, this has to be done towards the end of a pandemic. Uh, I, I'm assuming this can't be continued for, for much longer and is transitioned to EI. Tell, talk about this process and what is happening here. Well, let me, let me start with your word, seamless. Um, I, I wish I could tell you that I think it's going to be seamless because I think it's actually going to be confusing. Let me try to explain. Let's suppose you lost your job in early February uh, and, of course, you, you couldn't find employment, so you wanted EI. And you got EI for a little while until the CERB was created. Then you were transitioned to CERB because it was just easier for them to administer. If you have not used up all your EI benefits, then you will go back and you will finish off uh, whatever number of weeks of EI benefits you have left. But let's suppose that you have a job or had a job uh, but you also had to stay at home to help take care of kids. Uh, you didn't have daycare, and so you weren't really unemployed, but you couldn't do your job. Well, you got CERB. Uh, I don't think you're going to get EI. You're going to have to go back to work. Or let's take the con- say situation of somebody who couldn't get full-time work, so had a couple of part-time jobs. Uh, you lost them both. 
Uh, one was the more dominant of the two. Uh, today, the less dominant, maybe a retail, you did a couple of retail ships a week, they've called you back, but you can't live on that. Uh, you need to get back to your bigger job, but they haven't called you back. Of course, EI won't give you the same benefit if you've got an income, even if it's a partial income. So what I'm trying to imply through all of this is, in a lovely, perfect, straightforward case, yes, I think it'll be seamless. But when you've got these mixed cases and more and more the quote-unquote gig generation, as we like to call it, they, they cobble together work in many different ways, I don't think it's going to be that seamless for many people. Is this the best option? Is, is there another way to do this? Well, uh, the short answer, if I, if I uh, was more of a libertarian, I suppose, would be to say this is a chance to think about the basic income idea. You might remember Ontario tried this and said, okay, we're going to give you a guaranteed minimum income, uh, not enough that you would live really well, but enough that you wouldn't have to worry about putting things on the table, and then that would allow you to get on with whatever life gives you. Many people have suggested that the CERB experiment would lovely transition into a guaranteed minimum income thing, but we have to remember something like that, that's a gigantic government policy, and it really does need to be studied for a year or two or three, and implementation needs to be thought of so carefully. We've been innovating on the fly, and I don't think this is the time to innovate on that basic income uh, proposal. So I'm not sure there is a better way. And, and remember as well, Scott, uh, a survey of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business found that there were small business people who tried calling people back to work, and people said, I, I don't want to. And, of course, the complaint was that the CERB was too generous. People were paid too well to not work. Um, so, you know, we're, we've got to get people back to normal. You, for instance, have to get back to the studio. You know, we all have to get back as close as we can to the way life was in January and February. And, and along the way, there's going to be hiccups as we try to go back there. Uh, as we are coming off of CERB, is there anything to be learned from that that could apply to a basic income program? Well, uh, well again, I think the answer is yes. Uh, I, I, certainly nearly 8.5 million Canadians uh, took advantage of this, and it gave them stability and gave them confidence during a very, very difficult time. So whatever the government did worked pretty well. Now, um, there would be listeners who would be very quick to point out that there were some, um, uh, what word am I looking for here, fraudulent payments, people who applied and shouldn't get it. Yes. And the feeling is it was nearly $400 million, which sounds like an awful lot of money, but given that the whole CERB was over $80 billion, that actually represents a fraudulency rate of less than 5%. Um, but, you know, the, we were trying to get the money out the door, trying to get into people's hands, weren't trying to dot every I and cross every T. And, and again, in fairness to the government, half of that $400 million has been brought back when they found people who'd done things either by accident or fraudulently. They were notified, told to repay, and they have repaid. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's a difficult thing, and I think um, we tried to say to people back in March and April, don't get used to this. CERB is not going to be the new normal, and as you try to wean people from something that had become their new normal, there is just bound to be some hiccups as we go forward. You were talking, and it's been well documented, about employers who are saying that uh, employees are staying at home and collecting this instead of coming back to work. Would we see that same sort of problem? Is that one of the issues behind uh, the people who are against a basic income? 
Yeah, well, there's there's some of that going on. Now, the question is, what is your rationale for not going back? Or is your rationale for not going back that, I look, I look at all the money I'm making on CERB. I, I couldn't make that at work, so I'd like to stay on CERB as long as possible. That That is certainly a problem. But there were legitimate reasons why people didn't want to go back to work. We didn't have daycare centers open. Remember, it's only been in phase three that we've yeah. been able to get some child care centers back open again. Of course, another big concern is school in the fall. And as much as I know there are lots of parents concerned, if we don't get the kids back physically in school, then, you know, again, how do we transition people away from CERB as we go? These different kinds of employment, the, the person who had a contract and then lost a contract, what do we do with them? And, and you know, I just think that as, as we uh, wrap up CERB, and it was a very good experiment and it worked very well, we've exposed some things which we now need to study about the way people work and learn from those to figure out what do we do next. Uh, what about the difference between the CERB and what they would receive on unemployment, or rather employment insurance? Is it the same, roughly? Uh, roughly, but actually employment insurance was a little uh, a little more generous. So if you had had a pretty good paying job and suddenly found yourself unemployed, you'd be collecting $560 a week. CERB was paying you $500 a week. Now, note what I said at the beginning, if you were employed and had a really good paying job, there would certainly be people who qualify for less than $560 a week under employment insurance, given whatever they earned, uh, whereas with CERB, it was $500 no matter what was going on in your life. So uh, for some people, CERB was an enhanced benefit over employment insurance. For others, it was actually a bit of a slap. They took a bit of a cut as they went that way. And, and I think, again, we're going to see growing pains as we move people back from here. But it is part of that process. Now, I will also share this with you, Scott. Um, I would like to believe that this is a one-time event and we are marching to a new place uh, without a second wave. Hmm. But if that second wave were to come, what if we once again had to lock down businesses? What if we once again had to declare some businesses non-essential and, and so on and so forth? Then we might be right back into this CERB thing. So I, I think what the government is also trying to do in moving people to employment insurance is trying to come up with a contingency plan that if there was the start of a second wave, how could we nip it in the bud before it got broad-based? And this would be perhaps using certain quarantine methods and, and sheltering at home methods and, and targeted programs in targeted regions, but not do it coast to coast the way we did in the last few months. So as this group of people, as all of these people transfer from CERB over to employment insurance, what does that mean for the employment insurance system? Uh, are they uh, able to handle that? Uh, obviously, the numbers are going to greatly increase. Well, uh, let, me, let me start first with a, a, a little flaw in that argument. Step number one would be that most of the people would transition from CERB back to a job, back to the job they had before. Right. And we have seen the unemployment numbers going down. The most recent number is 10.9%. That was in the middle of July. We're now in the middle of August. I think that number now is going to be back into single digits, like 9%, 9.4%. Still people unemployed. Look, you know, the casinos haven't reopened. The, the Tim Hortons field is not in operation. Uh, some of these big venues are not at full strength. So there will be people who are legitimately unemployed. 
But I, I think the hope is that as many people as possible can transition back to the job they had before. That's also why the government has still in place the Canadian wage subsidy to say to an employer, okay, you, you don't really have full-time hours for Marvin, but you've got half-time hours. Look, we'll pick up the cost of half that salary. Bring him back. Bring him back so that he doesn't have to go to employment insurance. But to your, your point, the longer we can't get back to normal, the more people are unemployed because of uh, COVID-19, there will be a burden. But I think the gamble on the, on the employment insurance is that that burden might last two months, three months, and we, could get, we can get by. We can deal with it on that kind of a level as opposed to a two-year permanent form of unemployment. That would cost us an awful lot more. So, Marvin, what do you think is going to happen at the very end of August? Are we going to see automatically a, a whole swack of people go on to EI, or are we going to see a whole pile of people go back to work? Uh, a bit of both. I think you're going to see a bit of both. <coughs> Excuse me. I shouldn't laugh at my own joke. <coughs> uh, but the third <laughs> thing you're going to see is a lot of people confused. I, I can't quite get full-time hours. I can't do this. I don't qualify for that. What am I supposed to do? And there'll be heart-rending stories, and they'll be featured in the media. Every reporter is going to be able to find perhaps a single mother trying to raise two kids who can't do this, can't do that. There's going to be some people fall through the cracks. And so I think this may also test things like our welfare system. Um, if you have the choice of taking a job, take the job if you can. If you're still unemployed, take the unemployment. But unfortunately, there are people who are sort of in neither one of those two places and they're the ones who are likely going to fall through the cracks, and then we're going to have to, again, innovate on the fly to make sure that we don't have them fall completely to the ground. So should there be some sort of program to transition from uh, one to the other, or should we just cut off the CERB and just see how the other systems that are already in place absorb this? Yeah. Well, the plan is that there would be a system so that each case is being reviewed, there will be a letter sent, and it will be explained, okay, you qualify for this. No, you don't qualify for this. You qualify for this instead. Uh, the hope as well is, uh, you know, with the CERB, you had to reapply every two weeks. You had to, to say, I'm still needing CERB. And, of course, if you got employment, then you didn't need CERB, and you wouldn't renew. And so that's, that's what we're trying to do as we go to the end. But remember where we started here. Is it going to be seamless? No. There, I, I just know as I sit here, uh, with the best of intention, because when you deal with millions of people, there will be interesting little cases that don't fit neatly into a box, and they're the ones that you're likely going to hear about at the end of the month. I was going to ask you, Marvin, where you see this in about 90 days, but really, we don't know any of that, considering school's just about to go back, and we're not sure exactly what's going to happen once that does. Well, let me say it to you this way. We've had three rounds of opening, and so far... We have escaped without any major blowback, no major increase in COVID-19, and that's good. We've done this with an abundance of caution and carefully. We are not the United States. We are not seeing that. Now, I'm not sure that opening schools is automatically going to lead to another wave. Today, in Burlington, our sister city, there are three active cases of COVID. If those people remain in uh, quarantine, there is no reason to think that the schools are automatically going to be a hotbed of, of uh, COVID because where would it come from? If those three people aren't involved, it won't necessarily happen. But we, that's what we're holding our breath about. And I think in this march back to normalcy, those first day or two or five or week 
after we go back to school is a big uh, big thing we're going to watch. You and Scott Radley had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with the Black Lives Matter protest, thinking, well, we're going to have a big wave yeah, of COVID yeah. from that, and it never happened. And yeah. I think that's because you know people, some people were taking precautions, and other people simply didn't have the disease. If I don't have the disease and I'm unmasked, I can't give you something that I don't have. And I think that's now the big question mark. If we can get to the middle of September without any big repercussion from the school opening, we are really marching back very close to normal. All right, Ron, one really quick question here. I wanted to get it, this answered before I let you go here, Marvin. Uh, a listener asked, what will happen to the employees who see their em- employer call most of the employees back, but not all? What happens to the ones that are essentially left behind? They'll have to go to EI, will they not? Right. So if an employer has said, I want you to be on the payroll, but I'm not giving you any payment, I don't have a job for you, that person's going to have to change their tune and formally terminate you or lay you off so you can qualify for EI. Same thing if I call back 75% and 25%. Well, I'd like you to stand by. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to give you that uh, document that gets you the EI. And that's going to be an right. important thing. Employers have had a bit of an easy ride over the last few months. Now they're going to have to issue those documents. All right. Marvin Ryder has been with us to Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you so much. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario Provincial Police say that a tire that flew off a vehicle and hit another has killed a 24-year-old man. You might might have seen this uh, uh, story on the news in the last 24 hours. It happened along the 401 uh, in Scarborough, and unfortunately, this sort of thing happens more often, uh, more often than uh, we might be aware of. Uh, to talk more about what has happened here and the ongoing situation, let's bring in acting OPP Sergeant Dan. Hunter, he is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. All right, Dan, g- g- give us the breakdown here. What happened? What happened with this specific incident? So, uh, with this incident, it was 7:30 yesterday morning. Uh, a westbound Ford F-350 towing a utility trailer with two axles. Uh, it lost one of the trailer wheels, and he was in the express lanes. The driver and the wheel crossed over the center median, and was airborne. Uh, when it did that, and it was immediately struck by an eastbound minivan, and it hit the minivan right in essentially the center of the windshield, uh, and the resulting damage, it uh, killed the driver of the minivan instantly. Uh, we often hear about these situations coming off tractor trailer tires, uh, tractor trailers, that sort of thing, large vehicles, larger vehicles, uh, often that it happens with trailers this size. Yeah, it happens with all sorts of vehicles. Um, we do see fastener failures, as in this case. We're referring to this as a fastener failure. Um, we see that on small passenger vehicles. We see it on large tractor trailers. We see it on, on uh, trailers themselves, on the motor vehicles themselves. Uh, there's really no restriction there. It comes off of everything if it's not properly maintained. But obviously, we he may hear more about it or more damage simply because the size of, of truck tires and such. You talk about a fastener failure, Dan. Is this something due to neglect or is this just uh, where? How does this happen? Do we know yet? Yeah, there's a couple of ways that fastener failures happen. Um, one of the most common ones is insufficient torque. So we're talking about the wheel nuts themselves that hold the wheel onto the hub face, uh, the wheel nuts not being tight enough or I should be more specific than that and say that they don't have enough clamping force. Okay, right. So it does get a little bit technical here, uh, and this is something that our truck inspectors are trained to look for, is that if the wheel nut is not turned hard enough, 
It doesn't have enough torque applied to it, which is a measure of twisting force. That does not have enough clamping force to hold the wheel, the rim itself, onto the hub face. So, and there's a few ways that that can happen: it's either improper installation or um, improper torque procedures. If they're put on too hard, sometimes that can stretch the wheel studs. And even if they're put on too hard too many times, that repeated stretching, overstretching of wheel studs, can cause metal fatigue, which results in fastener failure as well. So there are a few different ways that this could happen, um, and it, it can be difficult to to tell which, you know, which one actually happened in this case. But what we do know is that the hub was still intact, and it was the fasteners that let go. So obviously, uh, this case still under investigation. But generally, Dan, um, is it possible to tell if this is the operator's uh, neglect or if this is uh, wear and tear, uh, especially when it comes to applying charges? How do you balance that? Yeah, interesting with the commercial motor vehicle world, we use the word driver and operator uh, is to sometimes they're interchangeable, but sometimes they're not. Where if you consider a fleet operator, I might own 10 trucks or 20 trucks. Uh, I'm the operator of that. I'm not necessarily the driver of that specific truck. And there is liability that's applicable in, in these cases to both the driver and the operator themselves. So there, if you read into that, there could be charges for the driver. There could be charges for the company. And at this point, there's no charges laid. Is that correct? At this point, there's been no charges laid. Um, we are under certain time pressures, of course, to reopen highways because we have significant pressures in the GTA. Um, but under the Highway Traffic Act, we have a six-month statute of limitations on laying those charges. So once we've done what we can at the scene, that's where all of our focus goes, to reopen the highway. And then we come back, assess where we're at with the evidence, and follow where the evidence goes. That's the time for us to slow down as investigators, to follow up every possible detail, make sure we lay the appropriate charge so in this case uh a pickup truck towing a utility type trailer with two axles on it uh did the driver was the driver aware of what had happened the driver uh i'm going to assume the driver was aware because he did stop um so at some point he must have become aware that a wheel was missing it was a wheel from the driver's side so he likely could have seen that in his driver's side mirror Right, And because of the axle, it was the first axle of the two on the trailer. So if you look down your driver's side mirror, it would be the first tire that you see on that trailer. So mm. he, he became aware of that and then did stop uh, in a safe location, not too, too far from the collision scene. And how often does this sort of thing happen? Yeah, I, I ran some stats this morning with the help of our admin staff. Um, and I've got some 2020 wheel off numbers here. So we've broken these down into light vehicles or passenger vehicles and commercial motor vehicles. So here, here are some numbers that I've got for you. We've got 93 total wheel-off incidents for 2020, and that's to date. Uh, and that's just within the highway division. So we're looking at the Golden Horseshoe from Barrie down to Niagara Falls and from Cambridge across to Whitby, that sort of general area. So 93 incidents of wheels coming off, and of those 77 of them were passenger vehicles. So the vast majority are not commercial motor vehicles. 
Wow. I mean, obviously, obviously, we have the, the inspection stations that are you see all over the 400 series of highways that are inspecting trucks and such. But those are those are fascinating stats. And most of these are coming from passion passenger vehicles. What does the average driver? Uh, what do we need? To, what do we need to do to fix this? Yeah, I mean, I don't often get excited about stats, but I, I know lots of people do. But uh, those are those were the numbers that came up today in the search. And I was surprised by those numbers as well. Um, so my advice for the passenger driver, the passenger vehicle driver, with no special training and no special tools, what can they do? And you know, I, my suggestion is to go out and look at your vehicle, do a walk around, have a look. Does it look like it's supposed to? If you're looking at wheel fasteners, as in this case, your vehicle is likely equipped with five, five wheel nuts per tire. Um, some subcompacts only have four. But if you're supposed to have five, do you still have all five? Yeah. And that's something that we can easily do. It takes very little time, no special tools. You just count to five. Uh, if you were missing one, you're down to 80% of your retention on that wheel. And, you know, that's just not sufficient for holding a wheel on. And as you said, you know, when you talked earlier about uh, either, either over-tightening or under-tightening these uh, wheels, obviously, if they're not all there over a certain amount of time with the energy and, and force that are on wheels, sooner or later, it's going to work something loose. Yeah, if one of them is loose, eventually the others will loosen as well. Yeah. So that's why I say for passenger vehicles, go and have a look. You might find you're missing one, or you might find that, uh, if somebody had done some work there, maybe they didn't install it properly and it came off. Who's to know that except you, the driver of that car? So just go and have a look, and you might prevent one of these incidents from happening. Important to look at this case. Uh, it was a trailer tire. It was a commercial motor vehicle by classification, but the size of the wheel and rim was not much bigger than a passenger vehicle tire. It was not a tractor-trailer size 24-and-a-half-inch rim. This was uh, sort of a it was a trailer tire. You know, out of those tire. ninety, out of those ninety three that you were talking about so far this year, uh, Dan, how many resulted in a death? This is the first. This is the first. Yeah. You know, when you think about all the vehicles that travel those highways, this is a small number. But you think ninety three wheels flying off? My goodness, that's that could be tragedy. Yeah. So I did. Uh, I pressed actually uh, Sergeant Kerry Schmidt. There has moved on to a provincial role, and I pressed him for some stats. Uh, and he came back very quickly. He said 56 commercial motor vehicle fastener failures province-wide. So in the GTA, the numbers that I have uh, at my level, 13 of those were CMV commercial motor vehicle fastener failures. Across the province, we're up to 56. Now, on this particular situation, you still looking for dash cam video or any sort of uh, help that way? We're always looking for additional witnesses. We're always looking for dash cam video, and we do get quite a bit these days. There are more and more dash cams out there, and people are coming forward with that evidence, which is just its fantastic for us as investigators because we don't need to come up with uh, a theory of what happened and then go about proving the theory. We can just play the video, and then we can categorize the, the physical evidence to corroborate what we see in the video uh, to tell the full story, but you know, video is best. Acting OPP Sergeant Dan Hunter has been with us. OPP uh, saying, of course, a tragic accident when a tire flies off a trailer and has killed a 24-year-old man. Dan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Stay safe. Thank you so much. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked a lot since uh, COVID-19 started about how it spreads, uh, how we protect ourselves, how we keep ourselves safe. Uh, Lots of chatter in the first couple of weeks of all of this. Uh, when we weren't really sure if it was the droplets through the air, the whole face mask, uh, face mask debate and such, and even how long the virus would last on surfaces uh, was another great concern. Or can it be transported, say, for example, through food? Uh, we now know that traces of coronavirus found in chicken wings, uh, or sorry, now we're getting a report of traces of coronavirus found in frozen chicken wings and shrimp packaged in China, or sorry, packaging in China. Uh, these have come from other places. Two cities in China have found traces of the new coronavirus imported in frozen food or and on food packaging, uh, local authorities said. Uh, raising fears that contaminated food shipments might cause new outbreaks. A sample taken from the surface of frozen chicken wings imported into China from Brazil, as well as samples of outer packaging from frozen Ecuadorian shrimp sold in China, have tested positive for the virus, uh, local authorities said uh, earlier on today. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. We talked about this early on in this pandemic, uh, Ahmad, about what, you know, how this was transmitted and, and how long it would last on surfaces. What are your thoughts on this story about the frozen food? I don't think it's very surprising, to be honest, because the story is saying that the virus can survive on the packaging. And we already know this. The evidence has shown us over and over again that coronavirus can remain infectious on surfaces like packaging of food, plastic or paper for up to four to five days. Some reports say nine days. So that's not really new. I think the concern here is that whether it actually can affect humans. And up to now, we have no evidence to indicate that coronavirus can actually found, sorry, found on surfaces can actually infect humans. So you bring up a very interesting point here, Ahmad. So just because the virus, you can test for it and it is present in these situations, it's not necessarily transmitted this way. Is that accurate? Absolutely. They need a live animal or human host to multiply and survive. That we know about COVID-19. The evidence so far has shown us that it actually the virus does need a live animal or human host uh, for it to infect, to, to create a respiratory infection, which, which is what COVID-19 does. So the fact that, it's, that we're finding it on packaging is not really that surprising. And I think we're going to see more and more reports as we move our testing from humans to packaging to see that it will be persistent on surfaces, and that's going to continue to happen. But the good news here, Scott, is that we also know that we can inactivate the virus by disinfecting it for one minute. So by spraying packaging with something that's like like a Lysol or something that contains ethanol, some some kind of component for disinfection, in less than a minute, we do disinfect the virus. So um, uh, what happened if, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here and a lot of what ifs, Ahmad, say this is on packaging, someone touches this packaging and then, I don't know, rubs their eyes, does everything we're not supposed to do, you know, touching your face and such. Is it possible to transmit it that way? I, you know, it's very difficult for me to say absolutely not or impossibly not. We never know because this virus we're learning from, but it's very unlikely. So to answer your question, no, it is extremely unlikely that somebody who touches a packaging that has COVID-19 then touches his face, he might get it. That we, we haven't really seen any reports of that. So, But we go back to our uh, basic interventions or advice that we gave throughout this pandemic that public health agencies have been giving 
over and over again, which is that when we get packaging, whether we, it is from a supermarket or food delivery or Amazon delivery packages, disinfect them. I always do that now in my house. It's become a habit. I have a hand sanitizer around. If I get a package, I put some in my hand. I open the package and put again in my hand to make sure that I disinfect them. So that advice hasn't changed. And we, you know, this report actually is making us aware that we need to continue raising that concern and raising that advice to the general public of making sure that they continue to wash their hands before and after opening any package they receive. So is there any, is really, is there any new information here, Ahmad, with this report? To be quite honest, from what I read so far, no. Uh, I think what it is, what is new for us is that the people are now testing packaging. Uh, that's, I mean, I don't know, I don't think that is a standard norm, right? Like, when was the last time you heard of reports of testing packaging? Very rarely. So I think this is capturing attention because we're noticing that health authorities around the world, this came from China, are actually now looking into food packaging and services. So it'll be very interesting to see in Canada whether we are doing that. Are we really testing all our food packaging to see if there's COVID-19 on them? What does it say that China found this? What does it say that they are doing this? Apparently, uh, the, this is product from Brazil and Ecuador that have come in and was imported into China. Obviously, they're doing this sort of testing. Should we be? Well, they're doing it because the, Brazil has an exceptionally high rate of case numbers yeah. of COVID-19. That's the case in Canada, right? So uh, I, am, I would like to think that we are doing similar precautions from, from food packaging that we're getting from countries that have a higher rate of COVID-19 cases. So China, Brazil are two examples. The U.S. now is a good example of that. Those are countries that are definitely flagged as potential COVID-19 transmitting cases. And so we are conscious of what we're getting into our country. I think that's happening. And this report is just highlighting that the need to continue surveillance and screening throughout. And so the message to the general public, what you and I need to be concerned about is continuing to make sure that we don't become loose on our uh, interventions or our strict adherence to guidelines about cleaning our hands before and after opening any packages. Is there any reason not to uh, take this information seriously or believe this information coming out of China? Is this political in any way? I, it's very hard to comment on that, Scott. I think what it is important is that we know that COVID-19 does uh, exist on services. That's not new. So there, I don't think the report is false. They found COVID-19 on package, packaging for chicken wings and shrimp. Not that surprising. Uh, whether the, And the fact that it came from Brazil or Ecuador, also not surprising. Those are countries that have higher rates of COVID-19. So it is, it's not that shocking for them to have COVID-19 cases on their packaging. How will the rest of the world react to this information? Excellent question. So I think what, what this is doing is alerting governments throughout the world to if they don't already have surveillance and screening mechanisms for food imports, which will be very surprising, to be honest with you, that they should have that. And that if they became complacent or like loose with their guidelines to make them more strict and strict, and we're going to see more of that. I'm quite confident in the coming days, we're going to hear reports of countries putting forward very strict guidelines on their food import and export. How would this food become uh, contaminated, Ahmad? Is this people who have had or uh, or have been close to the virus handling the food and then it's shipped out and packaged or packaged and shipped out? That's the assumption. We don't know for sure, but that is the assumption. Uh, COVID nineteen is a respiratory infection that's been transmitted through air droplets, and so the assumption here is that somebody probably coughed on this or there was some kind of respiratory air droplets transmitted to food packaging that made its way that made the virus its way to the packaging. Yes. 
We certainly have seen uh, meat packaging plants and food processing plants who have closed uh, since this started and then obviously reopened. Uh, obviously, that's that's safe protocol. Is is are you confident that we're doing enough to protect our food chain? I hope so. I mean, we're so dependent on our food chain, right? Like this is the survival of our economy and our our you know our day to day activities is dependent on food intake. So I, I think that has been always a major concern for the government, not only Canada but globally, is how do we ensure the food chain supply continues in a safe way, and how do we ensure? I mean, when we were trying to close the border with the U.S., that was really the primary concern was about this food chain supply. So I think a lot of countries now are looking into domestic supply of food because. They were also conscious of, of this idea that, you know, we can't we can only control so much that we get from outside. Maybe it's best that we really try to best put our resources to investing into domestic growth of food chain. All right, Ahmad, let's talk about going back to school in September. Obviously, lots of questions being raised. Uh, provinces are, across the country are, are trying to work on plans and w- which are ever uh, evolving, it, it appears. What's your greatest concern as we head into September and the kids go back? My biggest concern right now, Scott, is when I speak to parents, which I've been doing a lot of recently, is what happens when a child is tested positive for COVID-19? Do we have contingency plans in place for us to ensure that we contact trace them with any other children that were there or if a teacher comes in with COVID-19? And what are we going to do then? Are we going to go into lockdown the schools? Are we shutting them down? And if we're doing so, how are we supporting the parents at home? How are we supporting the children? The contingency plans is a big conversation right now. What are they and how will they be enacted? So uh, let's start with that. What should we do if, in fact, say a student in a class tests positive or a teacher tests positive uh, in a class? In your, in your mind, what should happen? Well, the public health expert uh, advice on that is self-isolation immediately of that child and also testing of anybody that's been in contact with a person who presents with COVID-19 diagnosis. We do have the alert app now by the government, which is a fantastic app that I recommend everybody download, that alerts you if anybody around you has been exposed to the virus. So schools, school boards are probably looking into that app to put it more as a, as a mandatory step for people that come into school. I, I don't think it's, it, it's un, unforeseen for schools to say that it is mandatory that you know, everybody has the app active when they come into school and that they have some kind of surveillance mechanisms in place, which the government has already put forward strict regulations and guidelines about how to do it. Now it's up to the school boards of what they enact from those guidelines and within what parameters they will work within. But that is a major concern. And the other thing they need to do is that we need to look into really explore what do parents need at home if there's a need to isolate the child uh, in their own home environment. Do they have a computer? Do they have access to technology? Are the teachers available to deliver content online if in any chance we need to go back into a lockdown? Uh, obviously, there's been chatter about ventilation systems. Uh, I guess this is in, in restaurants and bars as well as in, in schools, uh, particularly some of the older schools. What are your thoughts around ventilation? Well, the research has shown us that one of the effective ways to get ahead of COVID-19 is proper ventilation. Hence why we've been saying that, you know, air travel, for example, people were, there was a big conversation that you and I even had on the show before about how safe it is to fly. And we kept saying the argument then is the evidence has showed that air ventilation on a plane is very good. And so we don't need to worry as much. There's still a very high risk because people are being close to each other. But the same argument can apply now for school settings. Also, gyms, Scott, we can't forget that gyms are another big vector of disease. So we're talking about schools right now, but gyms are the same sort of concept. If they don't have proper ventilations in place that's being amped up to really make sure to purify the air, that's a big concern. And I, I hope that school boards and 
schools across the country are really looking into the ventilation systems and how adequate they are. And if in the case that this goes back to my earlier point about contingency plans, what happens when a school's ventilation system for the day is shut down? We've heard reports of Toronto's gyms, some of them where uh, athletes have shown up and the gym, the ventilation system that day was not working, but the gym still was open. That's a major concern. That In that case, Schools should be closed. Gyms should be closed for the day if their ventilation is not working. We need to err on the safe precaution. What about class size? That's obviously a contentious issue as well. Yes, class size is a contentious issue, but I think that if they maintain social distancing space within the class size, listen, there's not going to be a best-case scenario. I think what schools are trying to do and what everybody involved in trying to reopen schools are trying to do is how do we reopen them in the best-case scenario? So we're not opening them under ideal situations. would be there's no COVID or everybody has a vaccine, so therefore everybody's protected. That's not the case. That's not our reality. We understand, and I think the government understands very well, that there are risks with opening back schools up. But they offset the risks with the benefits of uh, children getting the education they need, the social networking skills uh, that are very important, that are only sometimes achieved through school environments. So having said that, schools are working with the best that they can. So school size, class size is going to be something to look uh, to to see how much students are allowed to be in in a class size. Uh, we've talked about this before, how come September when the kids ke- get back to school, there, there's all kinds of uh, flus and colds and things floating around. How concerned are you? I mean, September, maybe even into October, uh, you know, more and more kids will be outside. But as the winter approaches and we slowly have to stay inside due to weather, does that concern you? Yes, it does concern me because we know that that's going to cause a bit of a problem in terms of uh, um, uh, moving forward with uh, moving forward with uh, trying to figure out how the best case scenario is to keep them indoors while keeping them safe. So that's going to take a bit of uh, figuring it out. Like, do we need? Uh, be- that's when ventilation systems will become really, really important because the kids will be staying inside much more than they are during the hotter season temperatures. What advice do you have for parents who are very concerned about all of this? We're certainly we're certainly hearing uh, some politics, but we're all you know obviously some some very real stories and some very real concerns here. What advice do you have to parents? I say that their concerns are valid. I've been speaking to a lot of parents who uh, are actually excited to have their children back at school. I mean, there's always that mixed bag, right? You have parents. I think all parents are concerned about how that would look like. And most parents, I believe, are actually are favorable of the idea of opening schools because they understand the benefits there are for their own children. But they're obviously concerned. So my advice to parents is continue your, your due diligence, which a lot of parents have been doing. So monitor your child for symptoms when they come home. And yes, COVID-19 can be asymptomatic, but you do the best that you can. I think that's what we're all trying to do here. Everybody's trying to do the best that they can under the circumstances. How will this affect our kids moving forward, Uh, especially the ones that are younger ages, kindergarten, one, two, three, that sort of thing? Um, You know, I had a I had my mother grew up through the Second World War and we certainly knew the stories there. How do you think this is going to affect kids mental psyche? When we review the evidence on schools and the importance that they are, I mean, this research has been around for so long, Scott. We know that school environment is so exceptionally important for the social determinants or like the, the, the well-being of our children and how they grow and interact in social and society. That is so key. You know, school environment allows that safe space for children to grow and mature. Um, and so we know that we can't really, we can't live in a world that schools don't exist. But I think what we can think about now and what we should all be doing 
is thinking about creative ways to uh, function uh, in, a, in a world that can push us to live in isolation. So, uh, you know, I think schools must exist, but we also need to invest in technology for days. I'm not saying the whole entire year, for days when kids can't go to school. What does that look like? Can we, can we put in place infrastructure that allows us to streamline that process so it's more smooth, so that we have the best of both worlds? Children can go to schools to have social skills development, but also in the times that they need to remain at home, they're still getting some kind of educational attainment, which did not happen for the most case during the COVID-19 early outbreak. In the end, we have to find a way to live with this. Absolutely, because COVID-19 is one virus. There will be others that come in our lifetime and our children's lifetime. So we're just getting ready for a world that's changing. Climate change is it's pushing for more viruses to come to surface. There are, we know crises are on the increase. Right now, it's a COVID. It's an infectious disease. Tomorrow, it could be some other natural, God forbid, disaster. We don't know what the future holds, but we need to be prepared for sure. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same, same to you, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.